Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. We are equal parts consulting and content. On the consulting side, we work with digital agencies to help them grow and scale by offering fractional director services. On the content front, our mission is to inform, inspire, and entertain the modern commerce community. We do this with a newsletter that includes interviews with original e-com thinkers, the week's most interesting direct-to-consumer news, a jobs board, an event listing page, and a playlist. We also host events and the podcast that you're listening to right now. I'd highly recommend you go and check us out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, we're discussing owning and buying DTC businesses with Ben Kogan, co-founder of Agora and Hubble Contacts. We discuss the Agora investment thesis and process, why VC dollars can mask product market fit, where VC-backed DTC is going in 2024, whether it's better to IPO or sell to a big CPG, why the pandemic was bad for FBA aggregators and the advantages of being a DTC operator and investor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at OmniSend, your myth busters for Black Friday email marketing. How many times have you heard October is already too late for Black Friday or SMS marketing and Black Friday don't mix? What if I told you these are all myths? The truth is if you're using OmniSend, you're already one step ahead of the Black Friday game. OmniSend's platform empowers 100,000 e-commerce brands to cut through the noise with laser-focused email and SMS campaigns that convert like crazy. Think you're late to the Black Friday party, OmniSend's pre-made Black Friday templates and pre-built automation workflows will help you make last-minute campaign changes a breeze. It's never too late to catch the wave with OmniSend. Let's talk ROI. Last year, OmniSend users shattered the myth of low email ROI by clocking in an average of $72 for every dollar spend. That's double the industry average of $36. And those aren't just numbers. They're your ticket to a stress-free Black Friday slash Cyber Monday. What if you hit a snag? OmniSend's award-winning support team has got you covered, answering your questions in under five minutes. Yep, even on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, they're on it. So this Black Friday, don't get trapped by myths. Experience the power of email and SMS marketing that actually delivers with OmniSend. Discover more at getomnisend.com slash empty. Use promo code yourbasketisempty and get 30% off your first three months with OmniSend. Enjoy the episode. Ben, welcome to the pod. How are you and where are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Tim. And I am in Manhattan, in New York. Nice. Whereabouts? Uh, Upper West Side, where I'm uh, born and raised. So one of the few true true New Yorkers. True New Yorker. That's very cool. So this year has been a bit of a topical approach to the pods. And the sort of general subject that we're going to be covering is like owning and buying DTC businesses, which you are very, very well versed in discussing. Um, But let's start with a bit of a like get to know each other. For the uninitiated, you've got two businesses, Hubble Contacts and Agora. Just give me a sense of like, what is Hubble Contacts? And then I suppose, how did that lead to Agora? Sure. So I've been in the D2C world for almost a decade now. Started at Harry's, the men's shaving company, which is a great business. Learned a lot about the D2C space there. From there, um, sort of the heyday of early venture back D2C, the early 2010s, got really excited about potentially starting my own D2C business, wore contact lenses, uh, been a contact lens wearer for a long time, and sort of identified a similar opportunity I felt in the contact lens space that others had identified in mattresses or or glasses or or razors. And so decided to start Hubble, which is a venture-backed D2C business, which we launched in 2016. And, you know, Hubble is still going strong. My co-founder and I were, you know, co-CEOs and there for five years. But we decided two years ago to leave. We're still on the board of Hubble, but you know we decided to leave full time and start Agora, which is a direct-to-consumer aggregator where we're buying 
effectively bootstrapped D2C businesses that are not venture-backed. And I think really the journey we've seen over this decade is both sides of the direct-to-consumer space. We've seen the venture-backed side, which I know pretty well, and I've actually you know, co-founded a couple of other venture-backed D2C businesses too, and the bootstrap side, which are the type of companies we're acquiring at Agora. Amazing. So I want to... I think the rest of the conversation primarily will be more about Agora, but I want to sort of, we'll touch on on Hubble as, as we need. I want to start though, my sense is that people probably don't quite understand what aggregated businesses are. I think they kind of get it at a higher level, but they don't quite understand how it works. So I'm curious for you to give me, assuming I don't know much about it, like what's the kind of thesis behind it? So you've already identified, okay, so they're bootstrapped. So that's one key like marker, right? Like, so they're not other venture-backed companies, but you're looking for bootstrapped DDC businesses. Is the kind of idea you bring them on to kind of like a a framework, like so that you put them all on Shopify, you put them all on Yopo or whatever, and you, you make sure that they're super efficient and you grow them. Is that kind of it? Tell me more about what's the thesis behind Agora. Yeah, and I, look, I would say the thesis has evolved somewhat. The aggregation space, as you probably know, and other listeners probably know, has gone through a, a rough patch, I'd say, to, to say the least, in the last year or two. And Thrasio, which is the sort of the first aggregator, I think just this last week was reported they're you know, imminently about to declare bankruptcy. So it's not been great in the aggregation space, though I think we're in much better shape than most. Anyway, to your question, D2C aggregators are businesses that acquire direct-to-consumer or Amazon businesses, basically e-commerce businesses. We're focused on D2C, others focus on Amazon. The idea here is one plus one equals three. You can make an overall business that's worth more than the sum of its parts by taking best-in-class processes that you've learned um, and applying them to businesses that have maybe not been run with, with all those processes in the most professional way. I want to be very clear here. The businesses that we've acquired, I have been blown away by the talent of the founders and the operators, but there's always additional things you can do when you you are running a business in a more systematic way. And I would say, hopefully there are synergies on both the cost and on the revenue side. On the cost side, all these teams usually have duplicative functions on maybe G&A or on finance or on marketing. You can centralize those and, and save costs. And on the revenue side, if you're buying businesses in similar categories, you hopefully can cross-sell between the customers of, of those various businesses. That's easier to do on the direct-to-consumer side than on the Amazon side. So I think it's a big part of our thesis in the long run. Uh, but in theory, you have synergies on both the, the revenue and the cost side, which allow overall the businesses you acquire to, to grow faster than they otherwise would alone. That makes total sense. And we'll get on to, I'm very intrigued by the comments about Thrasio, and that's something that I want to talk about in a bit, like the sort of pros and cons of DDC aggregators versus FBA. But I want to stick with the kind of type of brand that you're buying. Can you talk me through the kind of the process? How do you identify them? Is it like, have you got scouts out there? Obviously, you're probably pretty well networked and you're in the space. What's the valuation process? What's the time frame like? Talk me through maybe even an example. So someone comes to you or you go to them, like what does that kind of process look like? Sure. There have been a ton of ways which we've found brands. You know, Part of it, as you said, is, is the network. I've, I've been in the space for a while as of my co-founders. And so we know people who are interested in potentially selling their business and we've known them for many years. Other times it's you know companies that lend to some of these businesses. We have partnerships with those types of companies and often... We can connect with them because they have relationships with hundreds or thousands of of brands. Other times it's cold reach outs. We find brands that are 
spending significantly on, on Facebook or Google, and you can figure out who those companies are publicly based on their spend, and then reach out to them and see if they're interested in, in being acquired. Other times it's podcasts like this or posting on LinkedIn, <laughs> as you know, as you said. So th- this is part of it. If, if anyone has a great brand out there, they're interested in potentially selling, please let me know. Uh, but yeah, I would say it's a, it's a whole panoply of, of things from you know cold reach outs to, to partnerships to, to networks. So th- that's how you acquired them in terms of like, and, and we don't need to get into specifics. I appreciate some of this stuff would be like sensitive, but like generally speaking, how does it work between the time of like, you have the conversations, is your due diligence process like quicker than others? Is it, is the objective you want to get them into your world kind of as quickly and easily as possible? And that's kind of what the, the founders of these brands are looking for. And then generally speaking, like what time frame does that look like? Yeah. So good question. I would say, like anything else, there's a trade-off here, right? Part of what you're pitching to brands is that if they talk to you, you're not going to do months and months of diligence so that you're interrupting their ability to run their own business. It's very annoying. You might not decide to buy the business in the end, and then they've just wasted all this time. We really want to stay away from that. On the other hand, we need to make sure it's a business that we actually want to acquire. And so we need to be smart about the the type of questions we're asking and, and making sure that we are spending the time to know it's a business we do want to acquire because if it's not then you know it's not going to be great for us and probably not even for the founder at the end so it, it's a balance there i'd say we try to be pretty fast if we get the information we need hopefully we can get to a decision about whether we want to acquire the business in i don't know 30 or or 45 days which is pretty fast and then there's a more formal diligence process from there where we really go through things in, in a more careful way, which could take another 30 or 45 days. But it's a pretty fast process. And if the business is simple and you know they're they're pretty transparent with all of their data and information, it could it could be fast. And then I appreciate the 30 to 45 days being quick for kind of the initial due diligence and then getting into it. As someone who's gone through an agency acquisition which took a 12 months of DD and yeah. incredibly detailed, that is very fast. Do you have, again, you don't need to go into specifics because I appreciate that it might be sensitive, but just generally speaking, do you have different exit options for the founders? So, you know, do you have an option where it's like, I assume probably lower valuation and they walk away, you know, it's all yours, they're gone. Or do you have other options where they have some sort of earnout? Do you have another option where it's like they buy into like Agora? Like are all those options on the table or do you have a preferred option? How does that work in terms of the kind of exit for the brand? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have multiple options and we've basically done all of the options you mentioned. I would say our preference is to acquire a business and have the founders continue to you know stay with us and operate the business with support, with help, with oversight. And then have some sort of earnout to continue to incentivize them to, to grow the business. In some cases, the founders don't want to do that. That's totally fine. And they'll just sell the business. You're right. It's a somewhat lower valuation for that reason, because we do think founders are a really important part of the business. Our goal is to keep founders around as long as we can. We think it's really important because they've run the business. They know there's so many things, as, as of course you know, that when you run a business that sort of in your head that is difficult to replicate. All the lessons you've learned, all the A-B tests you've run, you you maybe haven't documented them. And just (laughs) there's so much built-in knowledge that you have that's really hard to replicate. And so we try to keep founders around as as long as we can. Of course, founders also inherently want to found new things. And so sometimes eventually they'll leave. 
But if we can, can have them as long as we can, then it's usually good for, for us and, and for the brand. I want to switch gears. Like That's really interesting. And we'll, we'll get into some more of those kind of details. And I appreciate for listeners that like we could probably do an entire podcast just on the due diligence process yeah. itself. Maybe we'll at once a point. I, I do like that idea. But so your model is a potential you know, exit and a great and interesting um option for, for bootstrapped companies. But I want to talk about some of the other kind of DDC exits and specifically something that we talked about before we jumped on the recording, but something you've talked about recently, and that's the Smile Direct and Old Birds kind of examples. Like that was what led me to this podcast because I saw the post that you did. But high level, what do you think the synopsis is of those two particular brands? And maybe some of that kind of general vibe of what's going on. There seems to be, I think it's pretty well documented, VC backed DDC businesses that have once hyper growth have really struggled in the last like 10 years or whatever, five years maybe, you know. Yeah. What's your general synopsis of all of that? And we could use Smile Direct and All Birds as an example potentially. Sure. It's funny because, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of this you know podcast, I, I started a venture backed DDC brand. And so I've seen, you know, seen it from the inside. Um, and I just want to say, I have a lot of respect for everyone who starts a brand and raises capital or, or doesn't, it's, it's so hard. And so it's easy, you know, it's easy to criticize, but it's, diff- it's much more difficult when you're doing it from the inside. Totally. But I would say in general, you know, to put it bluntly, venture back to D2C has not worked. Um, it, it, in almost any case, there are some cases of businesses that have raised pretty significant amounts of money and are worth several multiples of what they raised, but they're pretty few and far between. Almost every business that's raised significant venture and started a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business is either worth less than they've raised or worth just enough to sort of maybe keep up with the S&P 500 or NASDAQ or something. These haven't been great investments for, for VCs, unfortunately. And I think that's true for a few reasons. In some cases, of course, the venture dollars can cause businesses to spend more than they should to grow faster. That's what VCs and, and the market was really rewarding until you know maybe 18 months ago. And so businesses spend way too much money on, on growth or on team or, or on you know expanding beyond their core market in a way that's not good for the business. I would say another piece of this that I've really come to believe is a lot of these businesses especially the ones that raised before they launched, never really had product market fit. And the venture capital dollars were used as a subsidy to hide that fact for a long time. And so it's not the case necessarily that the venture dollars hurt the business, though I think in some cases that's true. It's more that the venture dollars prevented the business from figuring out early, whether there was true demand for the product. And if you're subsidizing the demand because you're spending too much on marketing or your cost of goods are really high and you're not really making good contribution margin or gross profit on each sale, it could take years and years to figure out that only when the venture subsidies stop, do you not really have meaningful demand for your product. That's so interesting. Um, Because I've always thought my thesis was it was the the venture capital model didn't really suit them because a lot of the time they were giving them tech-based valuations and therefore the whole thing. But I mean, it's obviously way more like complex than that and you being behind the scenes, that makes total sense, right? And I, I suppose when you are awash with so much cash, that time between the VC dollars masking the kind of product market fit and realizing that could be fucking yeah. years, right? Like could be 10 years, you know, like because you've got so much cash. 
Exactly. I think it was in, in some cases, 10 years. Yeah, look, I, I do think you're right. The VC model isn't really a great fit for the D to C space, in, in my view. I, I think the VC model is meant, so really going back to first principles here, like what what is venture capital? Venture capital is meant to effectively give businesses capital that have meaningful upfront fixed costs to allow them to pay off those costs and then get to a place where they can start generating revenue or, or profit from the fixed costs that they've spent money on. So for example, software is a classic example of this, right? You build a software product, your gross profits are incredibly high, your marginal costs are very low after you build a meaningful product that maybe takes tens of millions of dollars to build. D2C products are not really like that though. D2C, mm. you know, so, some products you have some upfront fixed costs or some R&D expense to, to build out. And I actually, if you want to talk about this later, I think that's probably where the venture-backed D2C model is going to go. But a lot of these businesses, let's talk about, for example, some of the mattress companies, like there's not really that much R&D that goes into these businesses. They're often just going to China or a developed country and buying something off the shelf that any other business can do. If that's a good business, you should be able to profit from the revenue you're generating from each incremental sale. And you don't really need that much upfront capital to make that business work. And so if you're raising that capital upfront, and you're not really spending it on actual product development and more spending it on buying inventory or, or just subsidizing your marketing, that's not a great sign for the business. Well, this is a really nice segue. And I, th- I think we should talk about it. Um, you've kind of either coined the term or there's like a thing that you've kind of uh, talked about, which I've seen, which is like VC-backed e-com 1.0 and 2.0. So basically what you've said, is that what 1.0 and 2.0 are? And then I'm curious, you just touched on there, what's VC-backed 3.0 if there there is such a thing? I wish, if if I knew that, I would probably be doing it already, but um, I have some (laughs) guesses. So VC back 1.0 is is sort of the Hubble model, right? Or the, or the Warby Parker, or the Dollar Shave Club model. It's a business that's one business that's pretty meaningfully venture backed from day one and tries to grow similar to other venture backed businesses quickly. I don't think that model has worked out particularly well for the investors, unfortunately, in general. Though there are some businesses that have done well, like HelloFresh and, and Figs, which are exceptions. In general, though, it hasn't worked out great. What I called VC 2.0 is basically the aggregator model. So VCs realize that instead of subsidizing the businesses from day one, what you can do is there are businesses that presumably had product market fit because they were bootstrapped. They were not venture backed. They were making profits from day one. They were at least cash flowing enough to grow. And if you have an aggregator that buys those businesses, that aggregator itself is VC backed usually like Agora is or Thrasio and many others. And if you have enough of these profitable bootstrap businesses and you combine them and hopefully realize synergies between them, that should, in theory, be a way for VCs to profit from the growth of e-commerce by buying businesses that had uh, product market fit from day one. I think that model, I'm optimistic about Agora, but for other, especially on the FBA side, that model has proven tricky. Mm -hmm. In terms of where I had to guess, you know, VC-backed 3.0 D2C is is going to go or e-com 3.0. It's really hard to predict, but I, I think it, it probably has to get back to fundamentals of what is VC for. And VC is generally for paying for meaningful fixed cost upfront investments that will realize long-term benefits over time with businesses that hopefully have relatively low variable costs. So in this case, I think if there are meaningful VC-backed e-com businesses in the future, they will likely be businesses that have pretty significant R&D upfront 
where your product is not just one out of a hundred mattresses that you can sell. It's a really unique product that takes years and millions of dollars to actually develop that gives you, whether it's you know, intellectual property or the cost of actually developing that product, gives you meaningful differentiation from other products that can come in and, and copycat you. That to me, I can understand why would have a potential venture return because you really do have a unique advantage because you've spent years and many dollars developing a unique product. That should over time give you a, a venture return if you do it right. But the 1.0 model, I, I don't think is coming back. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I suppose uh, the way you've explained 3.0, I feel like maybe, well, there's obviously stuff that's already going on, but a more technical product that would be suitable for a direct consumer channel feels like an interesting option. And I feel like pharmaceutical would probably be a good example of that or lab grown meat or something like that, right? High R&D costs. But then at some point, like getting direct consumers feels like a natural like, and useful sales channel. Right, exactly. And look, I don't even think it necessarily has to be something so ambitious like Lab Grow Me, which is, I think, taking $5 billion or something in, in venture capital. I mean, maybe there's a business where it's a new type of mattress. It's fine, but it costs $5 million to make the best mattress of all time. And it's you, you have patents, you have intellectual property. It's, it's difficult to just immediately replicate it. I could see how that business over time could generate real profits for, for VCs because it has a real competitive moat that you paid for up front. But just paying for marketing, subsidizing inventory and marketing with VC dollars, I, I think that's that's not going to come back. So I want to get back to kind of more general exits then. So generally speaking, and I suppose the, the VC-backed thesis that we've just discussed may impact this question, but do, do you think it's better for a DDC business to IPO or get bought by a big CPG firm? What, what do you think right now is a better sort of exit strategy, maybe for Hubble or somebody that you would be advising? Yeah, look, I, I, in this case, I, I don't know if there's a sort of tried and true answer or an answer that's right for everybody. At some point, you get to a certain scale where it's pretty difficult to get acquired. You know, if you're like a five or $10 billion business, which some of the direct-to-consumer businesses in 2021 were worth, then it's it's pretty hard for a CBG company to write a $10 billion check. It's, you know, of course, P&G or Unilever or others can do it, but it's it's hard. And so I think IPO is, is really your only option. If you are a brand that is smaller and you potentially can get acquired by a CPG company because it's you're the size that maybe they can write a $100 million check instead of a $10 billion check. I think there's a lot to be said for you know CPG acquisitions. They usually will pay more than private equity sponsor or mm-hmm. in some cases than the public markets if you IPO because they think that there's meaningful synergies that they can realize by taking your brand, let's say, if it's D2C only, taking your brand to retail, which they have a ton of experience with that you probably don't if you're a relatively new D2C brand. And so you know, that's definitely an option. But of course, if you do that, you don't run your business anymore. It's not a separate business. You're a subsidiary of another company. If you IPO, you still are in control of your own business. So there's so many factors that go into this. Do you want to maintain control? Do you want to be a public market CEO? Do you even have the option to raise or, or, or to to have an acquisition from a CPG business. There are not many acquisitions anymore there after some of the mistakes that others have made in the space of Dollar Shave Club with Unilever. But anyway, cutting through all of that, I would say they're both pretty good options if, if you can get, get either one. I think you make a really good point there about the founders, right? Does, who wants to be a public market CEO? I think that's, that's a tough gig, right? Like yes. that is a very different type of founder or leader than running a cool startup. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely hard. The, we've touched on it a couple of times, so I want I do want to talk about it. And I think it was you that that, that wrote about it. Or I saw it that uh, you know Thrasio potentially going into to bankruptcy, which yeah, I want to talk about. Yeah. I saw them and I, I remember having some chats with the other guys, the Razor Group guys out of Germany, I think that they were, and sort of like getting under the skin of their model. But I suppose, why do you think they've kind of failed? Do, do you think it was a it was something wrong in the thesis? Do you think, I remember seeing something, I think Prof G wrote about it, that like it was potentially getting too worrisome for someone like an Amazon where they could just literally turn the tap off and then I think maybe investors got scared by that. I don't know. What What do you think? And Or do you think it was maybe just not because it was fulfilled by Amazon specifically, which I agree that I think direct consumer aggregator is a better model because it's not so linked to Amazon. Do you think it was kind of doomed from the, the beginning? I actually don't think it was doomed from, from the beginning. And I think, you know, ironically, the, the pandemic really hurt Thrasio. And, you know, I'll try to explain why. So look, the model of buying profitable Amazon businesses and operating those businesses, that makes sense to me. And, you know, aggregation has been, or, or you know, other people call it roll-ups, has, has been a play that other groups have used in t- a ton of other categories. There's dental roll-ups, there's, you know, roll-ups of barbershops, there, there's roll-ups of a ton of different types of industries. It doesn't make sense to me that, that e-commerce shouldn't be another place where you can roll up businesses, even FBA, even if you're tied to one particular platform like Amazon. I think the issue that a lot of the Amazon aggregators ran into is they started usually in, I think Thrasio started in 2018 or 2019. They were buying businesses for relatively low multiples. And then the pandemic happened. E-commerce demand shot up through the roof. These brands grew tremendously quickly. I think a lot of investors thought that we, we reached a sort of new permanent plateau or even permanent faster growth rate for e-commerce. And so there were similar to the mattress space, you know, with DTC 1.0, there were a hundred Amazon Thrasio FBA competitors and they bid up multiples from, I think they were originally paying something like two to three X EBITDA anywhere to like five, six, seven. I saw some term sheets that were like up to 10 X EBITDA <laughs> and it's pretty crazy. Uh, and, and I think a few things happen. So you buy a business for, let's say, conservatively, let's say they bought businesses for like five to seven X EBITDA. I think a few things happen. First of all, the EBITDA that they were buying, EBITDA, of course, is just a way to think about profitability, but it's not profitability. Net income is profitability. And there were a lot of adjustments there. And so the true profit of the business was probably much less than they were saying in, in some cases, because they were buying so quickly, they couldn't really do full due diligence. I think another issue was demand after COVID for e-commerce really leveled off. And in some cases, actually you know, went, went down last year. And so you're buying a business based on its trailing 12-month profitability in 2021 or 2020, that profitability and revenue of the, of the business drops a lot in 2022. And so in retrospect, you didn't buy a 10x, you bought a 20x. And you know, let's say then in addition, you, know, you were buying let's say whatever, 7X EBITDA, 10X EBITDA, your interest rates were incredibly low. You're usually using debt to buy these businesses. Your interest rates in 2021, uh, probably something like five to 7% for the largest aggregators. As everyone knows, interest rates rose a lot in last year and, and continue to do this year. Interest rates now for the largest aggregators are north of 15%. And so you're paying back 15% 
on a business that's shrunk 50% on its profitability, your debt's increasing, you hired you know, hundreds of employees in expectation of future growth, the valuation of your overall business has declined tremendously because interest rates have, have risen and because your business is not growing. All these factors in, together, just it makes it impossible to, to make the math work. And I think that's what's happening to a lot of these aggregators. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's like combination of like some pretty uh, unique behavioral finance herd behavior and then wild macroeconomic conditions. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to switch gears slightly and sort of start to, to, to round out the conversation. But f- from your perspective, I get the sense that there are huge advantages. So I'd love to know what they are. But do you think there are big advantages to being an investor and an operator in, in a DTC business? But are there any downsides and I'm wondering like things like, do you know the businesses too well sometimes? Do you know what I mean? Like as an investor taking risk, if you know about it too much, you may be less likely to take the risk, something along those lines. And I suppose if you were to suggest to somebody else, would you recommend this split? Like, is it, is it that advan- advantageous that you think it's a really good idea? Yeah, great question. I tend to think that it's really important if you're investing in a space to have operated in it and know what you're getting yourself into. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. One, when you're buying a business, having operated similar types of businesses allows you to know what to look for, know what questions to ask, know what due diligence questions to run through when you're buying the business. It's really difficult when you're not in a space to know how you can potentially, even as a, as a buyer, get tricked uh, into thinking something's better than it is. Um, of course, you can look at the financial statements, and we do, but there's so many things lurking in Shopify or in Facebook or in Google or in Clavio that you can look into if you've actually run a business and really see, is this business trending in the right direction based on specific metrics that I could understand because I've operated these types of businesses. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to be an operator before you're investing in a space. And then second, you know, I think it's also important to be an operator because if you have experience running a business in a space and you do buy the business, in theory, you should be better at operating the business after you acquire it. And so not only should you be better at picking the right business to buy, you should be better at operating it after you buy it. And so I I do think there's a a lot of benefit in, in having operating experience before you're an investor in a space. In terms of your question of like, sort of getting worried or put off about buying business, I I think that's a positive, actually. I mean, in many cases, you should be worried about buying businesses. (laughs) Um, Often there's a reason the founders want to sell the business when they do. Um, And there's a selection bias there. And they know that you know that, you know that they know that you know that, and you're trying to figure out often why they're trying to sell the business. And you should be worried because many things can go wrong and you need to keep the ship afloat after you buy a business. So in general, I really see almost no downsides to having experience in the space before you're investing in it. Yeah, nice. I want to round out with two final questions. So um, first one, if you could buy any DDC brand right now, who would it be and why? So I don't have the financials of the business, but I have heard that it's doing great and I've seen very impressive things out of the company Bombas, the socks business. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, they raised a pretty small amount of money up front. I think they sold a portion of their business to a P firm in like 2017 or 2018. But you know, in general, they didn't raise tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. The business grew organically. They have an amazing brand. They have a great product. Their gross margins, I know, are incredibly high, even though they donate, I think, a pair of socks for every pair that they, they sell. 
they've expanded pretty successfully into other categories outside of socks. I, I know the founder fairly well. He's a great guy, really smart, and one of the most impressive D2C businesses I've seen. Nice. Shopify Darling as well. They're a big Shopify yes. poster child, obviously helps. Okay, that's interesting. The final question then, uh, what's your number one advice? doesn't have to be one. could be you know collection of advice, but for somebody starting a DDC brand as we enter 2024? Yeah, good question. I would say it goes back to my point at what I was saying earlier about what I think investors are going to look for in this space, which is having a unique product. I think if you just start a, a sort of brand that's easy for someone else to, to copy, even if you see success early or initially, as you grow and as you show profit and people figure that out, you, people will make copycats of your, of your business and your profit will be eroded down a lot. And so if I were starting a new D2C brand today, I would really make sure that I had a unique product and unique idea that maybe it costs money to make a really unique version of, maybe it's just a lot of time and you spend the time upfront doing that. Because I think if you do that in the long run, you'll have a lot more success than making a brand that's easy for others to, to replicate. Mate, I think that's sage advice. I also think that's a great way to win the podcast. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Tim. There you go, folks. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you've heard, please like, download, subscribe, and tell all your mates to do the same. Before we go, a quick word from our friends at OmniSend, the ROI-focused email and SMS marketing platform for online merchants. Go check them out at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty. We'll see you next time. Get